In the face of the current atrocities perpetrated against the Ukrainian people by the government of Russia, we want to make you all aware of an opportunity to provide free therapy to those most impacted by the war in Ukraine. The organization called It's Complicated has created a platform for therapists from all around the world to offer their services for free. Particularly if you speak Ukrainian or Russian, please consider creating a profile at itscomplicated.life slash en slash Ukraine. It's Complicated is providing a secure online platform to conduct the sessions and will match people needing support with available therapists free of charge. Please consider creating a profile to provide free therapy to those impacted by the war. Go to itscomplicated.life slash en slash Ukraine. We want to give you an update about somatic integration and processing trainings coming up. SIP-1 and SIP-2 are both approved for 21 NBCC hours, and we have big news. They are also each approved for 10 hours of approved advanced credit through MDRIA. So if you're working on your EMDR certification, SIP trainings can count towards your needed advanced training hours. We're so excited to be able to offer this to all of you. More exciting news is that we're offering SIP-1 for an Australian time zone. On July 22nd through the 24th, we will host a virtual training starting at 7 a.m. UTC plus 10. If you're in another time zone, you're welcome to attend this one as well. But we've had so many people from Australia reach out about SIP that we wanted to make it more accessible for all of you. We also have SIP-1 available in American time zones on June 23rd through the 25th, and again on October 20th through the 22nd. Go to our website for all this info and more at beyondhealingcenter.com or email us at trainings at beyondhealingcenter.com. Thanks so much. Welcome to The Evidence-Based Therapist, a podcast where we read so you don't have to. Here you'll find three therapists discussing cutting-edge research articles, explaining why and how people work together to find healing. Welcome to Beyond Healing Institute. This is our first episode where it's the four senior clinicians of Beyond Healing Institute sitting down to have a conversation together. Hi, guys. Hello. Hello. Yeah, so it's Jen, Bridger, Caleb, and myself, Melissa. We have never recorded all four of us together. Yeah. Yeah. It's a party in here. (laughs) It is. (laughs) Even setting up the fourth microphone was a challenge. But we're we're here, and that's good. That is good. So everybody might be wondering, why are we doing this? Because we haven't done it before. Yeah. And we're actually going to release this episode on... The majority of our podcast? Mm-hmm. I think so. That's the plan. Yeah. So we wanted to have this conversation with all four of us because, well, for a few reasons. Number one, we kind of wanted to introduce you guys to the idea of Beyond Healing Institute. And Bridger, I'm going to let you talk about that here in a second. But then the other thing that we want to talk about is one of the main things that we do here at Beyond Healing, and specifically the institute portion of what we do, is we are theory creators. Which is kind of a big deal in the sense of it's, uh, well, I don't know how you guys feel. I'll just speak to how I feel. A little intimidating to say, yeah, I write theory. (laughs) 
Yeah, I never say that. Actually, <laughs> that never comes out it's of my just head. dissociated from yeah from, from that reality awareness. Yeah. Yeah. It's just right. there. You just do that, right? And and I think that uh, it's it's a thing that we advertise as, hey, we have these theories and we've created these trainings and we're doing more of it, but we haven't ever ever really said why did we decide to do that and what exactly do we believe about theory creation and why did we want to be another voice in a sea of a lot of voices when it comes to theory as far as Hmm. um, clinicians go and how we practice as therapists. Um, And so I kind of instigated this as a conversation with the four of us to sort of bring all of our different versions of the why behind that because I think we all kind of have our own maybe unique and personal perspectives on why we're drawn to this kind of work and why we value it so much. So we decided to record this conversation because I'm pretty sure it's going to be a fun conversation. Yeah. Well, you know, really transparently, we have not ever had this conversation no. before <laughs> us even. Not explicitly. <laughs> right. Yeah. Like it's never been, we've never sat down and thoroughly discussed the yeah. why mm-hmm. behind theory creation and what, you know, we all feel and kind of what perspective we hold on that. So mm-hmm. this is exciting just on a personal level to be exploring yeah. this together. I agree. With mics. <laughs> With mics on. We might as well do, do it, it that way. Why not? Yeah, and we're just making the assumption that somebody's going to be interested in hearing what we have to say about this. So it's on the podcast. <laughs> That's so right. They have to listen That's to it they in have a way. To, yeah. Um, well, so as a way of kind of starting out, Bridger, if you'll sort of share like what is Beyond Healing Institute, because we've been Beyond Healing Center for a really long time, and now we've kind of um, created this whole other sphere of things that we do, and. Uh, I guess I just kind of want everybody to understand, like, why did we do that? What is it for? And what are our dreams about Hmm. BHI? Um, Because I think that goes right along with why did we decide to do theory creation in such a direct way? Yeah. I think Beyond Healing Institute is something that is a collaborative kind of space just as a organization. And it's something that has so much to do with theory creation, but it also has to do with... um, the practice and really like the why behind the practice of what makes psychotherapy work, what makes different types of psychotherapy work and why do it one way or the other. Also, how do you talk about it? How do you teach other people how to talk about it? Mm -hmm. It has um, to me just an infinite number of possibilities. So when it comes to writing theory, I think beyond healing Institute is one of the places where it, that just, developed organically Mm -hmm. i don't think it was something that was necessarily at the heart of why we set out to do any of this um but it's just something that i think validates and gives us the space to be ourselves and the space to um kind of like the stage on which to do the things that we're already just kind of naturally doing Mm -hmm. so beyond healing institute it's hard to put it into just one thing because it's not one thing and the theory that comes out of it i think represents a lot of like the intention behind that. Mm -hmm. So beyond healing Institute is, um, just as it is, just as it sounds an Institute, wherein, uh, trainings of therapists, equipping people to practice psychotherapy and also collaborate and create community with other therapists and, uh, non psychotherapists. So healers all across the map and people that are interested in, uh, healing and interested in human science. Mm -hmm. Um, so, Beyond Healing Institute makes space for all of those minds and people and beings to come together and actually collaborate. 
excuse that uh, very loud engine. Mm, yeah, we are downtown occasionally. It makes itself known. <laughs> yes, people drive loud vehicles. Mm-hmm. But yeah, Caleb, what do you think about I think, Beyond Healing Institute? Yeah, I think exactly what you're saying. It sort of, I feel like I've had a lot of conversations about like the how wide-reaching like this cultural moment is hmm. and how each of us in some way like bear some semblance to that of we all have different interests but they come together in the realm of therapy yeah and in helping people kind of grow develop be a whole human and we just decided at some point almost like without explicits Hmm. um to just continue to build that community and the institute to me feels like it's that shared space of hey like we talk about the movie arrival like all the time. Yeah. And it's like that shared space in which we can exchange language and come to greater understanding of why do we do the things we do and why does it help people the way it helps people and Mm -hmm. like why, like just to make sense of it. And so the Institute feels like it's one of science. It's one of story. It's one of friendship. It's one of like healing for us. And then, our clients up at the center. Um, it just feels like this like beautiful space of integration. Um, yeah. And Institute is such a left hemispheric word. Um, <laughs> but I really feel like it is like, it's called that in like a playful way. Yeah. Because it's almost redefining what the Institute, mm-hmm. like what that what word we desire means. it to be is not this elitist place of, um, you know, you have to be like up with the, most cutting edge research and you have to know all the, all the jargon. It's like, no, you, if you're interested in joining the discussion, just come as a subject and Mm. let's, let's make meaning together. And I think each person's subjectivity has so much to offer into the Institute. It's even though we're saying we develop theory. Um, yeah, that piece of it, not having to be intimidating, Caleb, as you're describing of like this elitist type mentality, like I said, I don't, I don't think I've ever actually said those words of like, we create theory, <laughs> but more of that idea of like, what can you bring from your own professional experiences, personal experiences and offer it to the group where we can all share in those and connect and see what emerges out of that. Mm-hmm. And that is where a lot of this comes from. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think that uh, part of the reason why that idea of creating theory when we say it bluntly and in black and white like that, it feels a bit intimidating. It's because there's sort of this cultural feeling of, oh, if you create a theory, then this is what you believe the right way to practice is. And you're going to try to convince other people that that's the right way to practice. Mm. But I think one of the pieces of this conversation that I find really interesting is that everything that we've done up to this point and how I expect things to proceed is that we work in a way where we focus much more on the synthesis of much yeah, and the bringing together of a lot of diversity of perspective. But then we also come to theory with a pretty different um, understanding of what theory actually is and what it is for than maybe the way that we were originally taught in grad school. Mm. And one of the things that prompted this conversation that's happened, oh, I don't know, three, four, five, six times (laughs) over the last probably six months is we've gotten questions from listeners and people in our community about some of the theories that we reference. 
specifically around this idea of are they true? Yeah. <laughs> Rightness. Yeah. Um, are they factually correct? Correct. Yeah. And I think that part of why we feel comfortable sort of engaging in this way with theory and speaking as confidently as we do is because we don't really view it that way. We actually come to theory with a really different understanding of what is theory Mm. and not in a way that seeks to bypass the importance of, you know, fact checking our work. Like that's not what it's about, but in this way that it almost makes those questions of rightness feel sort of irrelevant to us and sort of, uh, strange (laughs) yeah uh to encounter them in this way of i wonder why this feels so important to people Mm. right um and i think the internet has been unhelpful in this regard because sometimes there's a lot of clickbaity things floating around there out there about theories being debunked um Mm -hmm. and i'm really curious to kind of hear all of you guys talk about how that feels to you but i always feel a little funny when somebody says a theory is debunked because my Initial thought is, no, that's the point of theory is that it evolves. So what you're saying is that something has gotten added to it. That's a good thing. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like the conversation is continuing. The research is evolving, which is exactly what's supposed to happen with theory. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I think in the space of asking whether or not something is debunked or is factually correct or has um, some type of um, unquestioning like authority authority. Yeah. Yeah. I I think that puts you into a burden of proof. That's just unrealistic and not really what advancing literature is about. Right. This isn't law. Right. This is idea and it's put forth in an academic way to say, can we actually start to inspect these implications, Mm -hmm. inspect these hypotheses Mm -hmm. and start to see if this actually is helpful to us in making sense of what we're seeing. Oh, but that's a very different way of engaging with academic discourse than the way that most of us were taught in grad school. Yeah. That question of, is this helpful to help us make sense of the phenomenon that we see in clinical work? In grad school, most of us are taught to engage with it as, this is correct, and you're going to cite these correct authority figures in your papers, Yeah. which is very different. So. Mm. Yeah. yeah. What do you guys think? It's about very that? different. Yeah. I, I don't know. This has come up a couple of times in EBT already of just like how there's this interesting, like implicit story about the actual researchers and that they're like super cutthroat and they all mm-hmm. hate each other. <laughs> and like they actually like, to me, I imagine a totally different story Yeah, in which they're all like sitting around jovially at a, at a table like writing these papers, referencing each other, like they're there's like in a way so friendly to one another in their papers, mm-hmm. like referencing. And even when they disagree, it's like respectful, it's super yeah. respectful and generous to mm-hmm. the, to like what the other person is saying. And it's so easy to fall into that. I don't know if it's a consumeristic kind of like paradigm to mm. research, but it's like, um, this is the best. This is yeah. like the greatest. And also like, Um, this tells me like, this is definitive and I I don't know, maybe it's me as like a nine (laughs) and this is like my paradigm, but I've always felt so much more supported in any like reading I've done of just like holding multiple people's voices, like within myself. Yeah. And 
to not like, looking for the one. Yeah. Like, and, and we do this with SIP all the time of like, we introduce a, a kind of concept and then we talk about where the theory comes from. And then we like almost immediately say like, but that's not the full picture. Mm-hmm. And we have to like check with the other people at the quote unquote, like imaginal table, table, imaginary table at our theory. Um, and that just feels like so much more supportive to me. Mm-hmm. And, and that to me is like when you really get into research, like when you start writing it, when you start like deeply divulging into it, like looking at all the citations, like these guys are just, and girls, like they're all very much friendly to one another, mm-hmm. referencing one another and seeking to like come together. It's rare that they're just like slashing one another. Yeah. Um, that, that feels like the outlier to me, mm-hmm. um, at least in my exposure. Um, yeah. So, yeah. And I think like we're going to do a series or a small, uh, um, episode on what's been happening with polyvagal theory mm-hmm. right now, because I think polyvagal theory is an excellent example of like what we're talking about, right. wherein some of the scholarship that has come out is very, uh, accusatory yeah. rude. and rude. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And takes that clickbaity vibe a lot more. Uses the word debunking. Yeah, yeah exactly. Mm-hmm. And so there is some of that, but largely I think the discipline of academia is intended to be very much so respectful. Yeah. Yeah. I mean like the, the philosophical foundations of research yeah. are that you can't, you can't get into an argument unless you are being generous to the other person. Right. That's like so initiating. Gonna, like, red herring fallacy. Right. Like, yeah. You're going to deposit something into their argument. That's not even there. Like you can't, this is like very mm-hmm. high level, like, but that's exactly what's happening research. with polyvagal theory right now is yeah. the red herring fallacy. Right. So we have a good example of that just because not everybody's going to know what the heck the red herring fallacy means. <laughs> so, um, I think most of us read an article recently that was sent to us, not about polyvagal, but about uh triune brain. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. And, uh, <laughs> in this article, the uh, author actually said, just so you know, you don't actually have a tiny reptile in the center of your brain. And I read that and laughed out loud. I'm like, at what point did the <laughs> did the research and the authors of the trying brain theory say, you have a, a tiny lizard. little lizard? Yeah, it's likely a gecko or maybe it's a chameleon. I'm not sure. I'm but not it's, sure. It's I'm living. Yeah, <laughs> It's actually in there with its tail and its teeth and all of that. Yeah, that's not what the theory said. And and that is a good example of the red herring fallacy of that's never <laughs> what was intended yeah. uh, when that hypothesis was put forward. Um, but when we talk about it that way, it's like, oh my gosh, you're right. We don't have a lizard in our brain. We can't talk about the reptilian brain anymore. Uh, no, that's not actually what that means. So that's just a, a simple but very important example of what red herring fallacy does in those kinds of discourses and how not useful they are and really not at all in the spirit of academic discourse. Like this, that's not how it's supposed to go. Yeah. I something that's standing out that Bridger and Caleb, you both said of, um, Oh, no, actually, maybe as you, Melissa, is it helpful, that piece? And then, Caleb, as you're talking about that idea of being able to hold multiple voices in yourself as you're you're creating and working with um, another client, if we get so rigid and strict on one specific uh, research or theory or theorist, how 
how much are we limiting ourselves in experiencing like humanity mm-hmm. yeah. and to really look at like we're trying to be inclusive to the human experience that is so vast and yes. so diverse and you need so, so broad. many voices so many voices from now until forever yeah. because it will continue to evolve and, yes. and to stay up with that means not just you know limiting or restricting yourself to one single voice mm-hmm. yeah and, and it requires a lot of humility and Caleb, kind of like you were saying, it's it's the assumption that everybody has the best intentions. You know, when when we put forward a hypothesis or a theory and say, "Hey, this this might be valuable in our consideration of whatever clinical issue we're talking about," um, we're not taking a stance of this is the end all be all, you know, biblical answer to how to be a good human. Yeah. And if you encounter a theory or a theorist or a researcher or an author that takes that position, please be very suspicious. They're likely going to try to sell you something. (laughs) Um, And and there's nothing wrong with people, you know, benefiting and profiting from the theories they put forth because it's a lot of freaking work to to be dedicated in that way. But if somebody postures themselves as being the the right theory in a vast sea of perspectives. Um, it's pretty, pretty safe to be suspicious in that space. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's the felt sense to me is the difference between scarcity and abundance of, are we in this place of there's a scarcity around, um, the resources or the exposure, the people that we can reach and the influence we can have, or is it abundantly available? And that that's not something that has to become competitive and restrictive, but very inclusive. Yeah. And Mm -hmm. I think for us, what we are putting together is not a definitive theory. No, mm-hmm. it's not even something that claims to be that. And that comes because uh, I think of the like disposition that all four of us have, we're creating an interpretive framework, mm-hmm. like a, a meta theory, which is one that encompasses multiple other theories and helps to bring synthesis and clarity, depending on what point of the like diamond you're going to look at, like what side of the mm-hmm. diamond that you're going to look at. And so to us, we're really just collecting diamonds. Like that's honestly like what we're doing and putting them into just this one, uh, large diamond to say, let's look at it through that and look at what happens to the light mm-hmm. when you shine it through now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. If, if, if I wanted to know the diamond, I would go ask everyone around the circle around the diamond. Yeah. Like that's how I know the diamond. Mm-hmm. But if I'm just looking at the diamond, I will only ever get my perspective. Yeah. Yeah. And there's so much beauty to be had in the openness of tell me what you see. Like what, what, what's your perspective of the diamond? Mm -hmm. And even like asking how people have seen the diamond across time. Yes. That's like where research is somewhat the most beautiful is that we can see the transformation of how we as humans have seen this diamond through time. And that's through myth, through research, through many different ways yeah. and, and exploration, mm-hmm. especially, especially psychological, uh, theory or, or just theory of humans. That's something that it's been chasing the same breadcrumb trail for all of humanity. Mm-hmm. Like look at all of the different types of myth and liter like literature, yeah. uh, that records people contemplating what is the human. Mm-hmm. That's all relevant when you start talking about theory mm-hmm. with human beings. Well, and, and even beyond that, I think that understanding that we've been asking the same questions the whole time, but the, the progression of the answers is actually how evolution of our species happens. Yeah. Right. So 
an easy example of that is the way that a culture conceptualizes the self in relation to the other. And when you track the, the theory of selfhood across time and across cultures, there's so much in common, but there's also this really clear progression of self-awareness and self-understanding. Mm. And that is part of how we evolve because we are in this constant feedback loop between our own self-awareness and our environment and both inform each other. And so when we, you know, are looking to make sense of where our species is headed, we have to look backwards Yeah, and we have to understand theory as an ever evolving myth of humanity. And, you know, that's one of the points that I kind of wanted to make that I really conceptualize theory as myth. And we have this weird thing in our culture where myth means not true, <laughs> which is not true. Mm. Um, myth is beyond is it true or is it not true? It's a way of expressing um, realities that are incredibly complex. And when we do it in symbolic form and in the, the form of story and narrative, it communicates so much more than just stating a black and white fact. Yeah. Mm. And um, I think that what we seek to do here at Beyond Healing is actually a lot about, you know, you said meta theory and meta mythology. Mm. of this collection of myth mythological stories about what does it mean to be a human being? What does it mean to be a healer that works with human beings? And in the enmassing of all of these myths together, we get this incredibly robust pool of symbolism that we get to be supported by as a clinician. So that when we're sitting with a client, those symbols just sort of bubble up and emerge mm. with all of the felt sense, all of the context, all of the, um, the information that comes with a good story and with a good symbol that's so much more powerful than just one stated fact. Yeah. And that is really what we seek to do. Um, I don't know how you guys feel about that, but that's how I conceptualize it. <laughs> yeah. I just think with that, it holds the potential to be transferred into so many different contexts, mm -hmm. like a, a single fact is maybe relatable to you know a, a limited number of contexts when you when you bring it into story or you bring it into a myth theory then we can apply that then to an infinite infinite number of situations right. and you know contexts yeah which that there, there's a point that we wanted to get to on like the humility mm -hmm. of writing theory and i think jen what you're talking about right now is i our intention is that as a theory moves through a context that it would be changed, yeah. that it would be added to, mm -hmm. that it would be stretched and pulled and, you know, tried on yeah. in that context. Yeah. And, it, and what I was thinking is spoken in a different language. Yes, mm -hmm. absolutely. Like, mm -hmm. like if I'm struggling to communicate a neuroscience like concept to a client, I'll just say, well, okay, let me just think of a metaphor. Yep. And then they can or get the draw metaphor. It. Yes. Right. And it's like, okay, that's the language you get. Okay, we'll speak that language. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But mm -hmm. it does this sort of like, I hope that every time our theory goes into a new context, it's spoken, but with a different language. Mm -hmm. That's it. Yeah. yeah. Because that kind of symbolism is so much more translatable, mm -hmm. right? Like when we're engaging with com well, complex ideas like the neuroscience of the human brain, mm. which anytime somebody says they know for sure something about the human brain, <laughs> uh, no. Um, but we have a lot of information at this point that gives us really substantial clues as to what is going on. Um, 
And one of the things that I've read recently about mythology that I just love is myth in order to be effective at doing what we want a good myth to do has to do with being believable, not proven. Right. And there's a big difference between being proven and being believable to acknowledge that something may or may not be proven, but it is believable. means that we're operating like right on the edge of where science currently is and allows us to extrapolate a little bit further. If we could only work with the information that we know for sure about the human mind, we're toast because we don't know that much. Yeah, There's so little that is for sure proven, but there's a lot that's believable based mm. on the evidence that we have. And theory and myth kind of lets, lets us sit right on that edge of where neuroscience is sort of pointing us saying, we think this is what is happening yeah. based on what we've observed up to this point. Yeah, and that question of, is this helpful? Yeah. Like that to me is the ultimate, Caleb, I go back to like what you were saying of the client. Like if I'm sharing something with a client and it doesn't feel like this is actually bringing uh, clarity Mm -hmm. to what they're describing, I'm not going to continue trying to just nail home (laughs) like what I wanted to say. No, no, no. You don't get it. Yeah. Okay. Wait, (laughs) let me explain it. Okay. Why are you not getting this? Let let me give you a book to read about neuroscience. right? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Like let's contextualize it to that person and help them understand why uh, why this point feels like it will give so much understanding and context to the person, so much insight. And that transfers then into the context of those that we're training or teaching others. Yes. Yeah. Then there's a shared language to pass that on to other clinicians to be able to engage and connect similarly with their clients. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Martin Buber, who's like a, a philosopher has, he wrote the book, I, I and thou, um, he has a, a theory that it basically says like truth is dialogue, uh, yeah, dialogical, not uh, monological. Yes. Mm-hmm. So truth is discovered, not in the monologue where I share my truth and then you accept it. Mm-hmm. Truth is found in the dialogue where we go back and forth. Yeah. And then what emerges from that dialogue is truth. Mm-hmm. And I just think that's like a beautiful kind of cross discipline interpretation of theory and research and science is that, you know, it's great. And I will like go to bat for neuroscience any day Mm. and also like hold in the other hand that we need myth. We Mm -hmm. need art. Yes. We need stories. We need film. We need, well, yeah, as you were talking, the, the phrase that we've played around with, like the stems of the words, like dialectical, we've played around with polylectical. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like it's not just two even. Yeah. It's more than two. It's many. Yeah. And so in that it's the polylogue. Yeah. that determines truth. Mm-hmm. It's a very constructivist way of looking at it, but yeah. I like it. <laughs> I mean, I'm there. I'm there all the way. Yes. Well, and I think that like there's so much humility in just taking that stance of this has to be a polylectical, ongoing, evolutionary conversation because if it is not, then number one, we get siloed. Yeah. And then we fall into this trap of looking for which theory is going to win and then everybody loses. Mm-hmm. That is ridiculous. Um, like I cannot overstate like the amount of ego and hubris involved in competing theories to see which one is going to win. Just there's no room for that in yeah. um like the, the heart and the stance of a healer, like somebody that really is interested in doing what we think we're supposed to be doing as therapists. It's not about that at all. Yeah. And now, oh my gosh, this, this goes into the polyvagal theory, uh, like 
argument that's going on. But in one of the blog posts that I was that somebody sent me, there was something uh, within that that said, "Is anything salvageable oh, from the polyvagal theory?" Oh my and gosh, that they, makes me angry. <laughs> the blogger answered, "No." Uh huh. Like the air, the arrogance of that kind of stance as an academic is just really, really hard to believe. Oh my. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like, and and to this like point, like when we do trainings, we'll get this sort of like implicit ghost of competition and mm-hmm. rightness. Yeah. That sort of comes out in questions, and it it has amazed me, and will probably continue to forever amaze me, that when you invite people to say like actually like this game that we're playing is more fun when we don't care about who's right and wrong. Yes. When yeah. We don't care about winning, but we just like try out every position, try out every position. We kind of rotate, we have fun, mm-hmm. we talk to each other. We Let's just communicate. Dance. Let's it's dance be great. with one another. Yeah. Like, and to see people kind of find that freedom of like, Oh, I don't have to play this game. Well, and the fact that their lived experience matters too in academic discourse, whether they're a traditional academic or not, like when they encounter a theory and they're looking at it going, "Mm, that doesn't resonate with my lived experience or that doesn't fit or work with a clientele that I work with. Like, I don't know how this is useful to me. Then our answer would be, then it's not like Mm -hmm. (laughs) don't, don't force something that is clearly not fitting because there's, there's so much about, the way that theories have been developed in recent history that completely discounts realities of so many sections of populations, of races, of uh, people that are not traditionally represented. I mean, like Caleb, you you said, and rightly so, these guys, because the vast majority of theorists over the last several hundred years, and probably longer than that, have been white males, period. Mm. Like we have a, a major issue when it comes to theoretical development, because there's an over-dominance of certain voices and a total lack of representation in other voices. Mm -hmm. So the idea that these theories could be right and accurate for all humans is ridiculous. Preposterous. Preposterous, yeah. When we're looking at meta-theory that is highly inclusive and collaborative. Mm -hmm. Like, look, there's a group of four here right now, all working hour after after hour on theory development and content creation and then we have a whole team of other people behind that and every training we do we're inviting every one of those people to join in and collaborate mm-hmm. on yeah, the development exactly right and that just feels so beautiful to me that we can set out a training and not from a place of competition of this is ours like this has to be ours yeah, I hate that and our game. name is on yeah. it yeah. yeah but it's oh man, that's great experience that you have and wisdom. Hey, do you want to like start scheduling regular consultation to collaborate on further developing that with that specific focus? Yeah. Literally, Bridger, you're doing that across the world right now. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like Mm -hmm. literally. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. It's amazing. It is. It's beautiful. Yeah. And why would that not be our invitation? Like as humans, why would we try to say, no, no, like I, you need to listen to me. Because we live in capitalist America, Bridger. (laughs) (laughs) Then why am I doing what I'm doing? That's another well, and, episode. And and also, which we kind of did one uh, a mode. We did a but, little bit. Yeah. Okay. Um, I would. Yeah, it's so like fascinating to me that like what we in the psychological world study out there mm. can be embodied in That's how right. we like do perform relate to research. Like I can have a disintegrated self state that is a stress response. Yeah. Of like trying to find the right answer. And oh my gosh, people have so much trauma and 
trigger spots around academia and engaging with research. Mm-hmm. Like, oh my gosh. Yeah, you yeah. want to talk about a ghost of shame in yes. academia? Yes, like that is real for people. And so when we invite people in and say, your voice matters too, in theory creation, like all of that is present. This this feeling of imposter syndrome is something that we talk about a lot. That, yeah. You know, there's so many clinicians that feel like their voice uh, is not important in academic discourse. They couldn't even imagine themselves contributing to the creation of an effective theory. Yeah. But I think part of the reason why we do it confidently is because of this posturing of we're not ever in a position to say we know for sure that we're right. It's not about being right. No. Yeah. And, and we're never going to stop reflecting back on our own theories and saying, what needs to be adjusted now? There's yeah. an assumption that it will, right? Not a protectiveness over, oh, no, no, I can't change anything because I had to be right the first time. Right. There's an assumption that we'll always keep questioning it and adding to it as more information comes. Mm-hmm. I'm so curious to know how people will um, <laughs> engage us and please shoot an email or comments yeah. or whatever however you want to communicate with us because yeah, this really is like an invitation to connect because Mm -hmm. we wanted to keep it shorter. We Mm -hmm. wanted to keep it in the space of just here's where we're at. Where are you guys at? Yeah. Yeah. What are you thinking? Yeah. Well, and I think, you know, that, um, the way that people engage with trainings, um, I think has been something that we've all kind of noticed and experienced as we're more and more in the role of trainer, um, that there's, this feeling of like we have so much to share and so much to offer and so much wisdom, but that's not the felt experience of us on the other end of it. Yeah. Um, and how much, you know, beyond healing Institute really desires to be a space in a place where the focus is on many voices coming together and sharing so that we can all benefit. Um, I mean, we just had a call this morning with somebody that has an area of expertise that none of us have. Yeah. And, all of us, you know, unanimously said, how can we promote you <laughs> to, to start to speak about this in a theoretical way and develop theory well, yeah. and develop trainings? How because, can we join you? Yes. Like, and yeah. learn from you. And collaborate. Yeah. And um, I, I think that that really is at the core of what we're hoping to uh, develop even more. And yeah. the only way we can do that is if people really feel invited and welcomed to start experimenting with lending your voice. You don't have to be confident and for sure about what that even looks like. It's, it's well, to be totally transparent, it looks like just talking. <laughs> like having, having a conversation yeah. and talking back and forth and exploring. And what emerges out of that is ideas that we would have neither, neither of us would have ever come to those insights just on our own. Mm. And it's in that space of collaboration. And you hear us talk all the time about the intersubjective space. And that is the richest fertile ground um, for theory to emerge because theory is story and stories happen between people, not alone. Um, and so, yeah, that's a very long-winded invitation to be part of that theory creation in whatever way feels good to you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And to engage theory with curiosity. Yeah. Stay curious. <laughs> Stay curious, everyone. <laughs> yeah, we're not starting another podcast where that's the tagline. Okay. Oh, Why not? Dang it. We'll, think of, we'll think about it. It could be a <laughs> sub-tagline. It could be a, a sub-tagline. I like that better. Anybody have any concluding thoughts? This is 
fun to just spontaneously sit down and talk about. I mean, this is a big topic and for us to oh, have yeah. not have like really prepared of like, oh, we're all going to say this, um, mm-hmm. just to, and to feel how in alignment we are just feels so honoring to like the felt yeah. experience of what it's like to be a part of this team. Yeah. Yeah. We have some immaculate right brain synchrony uh, around this topic. <laughs> and I was, I was so impressed with how our left hemispheres joined this conversation. Yeah. It was beautiful. Uh-huh. Yeah, I don't think that we could have done everything that we've done if there was not that synchrony. That's yeah. true. We have yeah, a lot of practice telling. with yeah. that. Yeah. It's like, oh, okay, well, now it's just time to say the words out loud. We've been doing it this whole time. Let's just yeah. talk it out now. Uh-huh. Well, thank you for having this conversation, guys. I yeah. enjoyed it. Yeah, me too. Hope you guys enjoyed listening in. And welcome to Beyond Healing Institute. Thanks for listening to this episode. Find us on our website at beyondhealingcenter.com slash media. Also, subscribe to our Patreon to support us at patreon.com slash beyondhealingcenter. Find all episodes on iTunes and Spotify. Thanks for listening. If you enjoy what you hear on these episodes and are interested in speaking with one of us at Beyond Healing Institute, we would love for you to reach out about our consultation opportunities. Of all the many things that we do, consultation is one of the things that we enjoy most. We love supporting other clinicians in conceptualizing their cases from a neurobiological and nervous system-informed perspective. We offer individual and group consultation for somatic integration and processing, as well as for EMDR therapy. Individual consultation is a great way to get personal time to reflect on your cases and how you and your work influence one another. Group consultation offers so many opportunities for learning and connection with other like-minded clinicians. Our greatest mission at Beyond Healing Institute is to offer opportunities for professional development and create a supportive community in the field of mental health. Beyond Healing Institute is excited to announce that we're moving. Okay, well, we're not moving our building, but we're moving our trainings, continuing education resources, and community events to Canvas. This will help you as a member of the community to stay in contact with other members of the Beyond Healing community, while also providing a platform that brings consistency and convenience to all of our trainings and course offerings. Canvas is an online learning management system that will be your home base for all things Beyond Healing, as well as a virtual campus that will house all of our trainings and continuing education resources. We're so excited to invite you to our virtual campus on Canvas and we hope to see you there soon.